You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. That because that was way good to listen to. <laughs> all right. Um, so worship looks different all around the world. Um, I'm going to show you a quick video actually to highlight this. Okay. So uh, let's see if we can pull up a video. The computer. Here comes a video. Check this out. Yeah. that you can't see in this presentation is that if you go to CM Alliance, or, uh, excuse me, vimeo.com backslash CM Alliance, you can look up this video and you can drag it in a 360 format. It's, it's shot in 4K 360. Like you're in the middle of the church and you can sit and look around at everybody that's, everybody that's there that was presented in a widescreen format all knit together. Super duper cool. I would encourage you to do it. Um, but here's one of the cool things, right? Like uh, one of them said Minnesota. It's not the Minnesota I ever experienced in worship. I worked in Duluth, Minnesota, right? Like apathy was way too much emotion for the people in Duluth. And it was the, the their worship reflected that, okay? It was hymns and it was, I mean, if you decided to move a little bit too much, you might even got like movement shamed just a touch, right? Because there was a culture to that church. That doesn't make it right or wrong. See, I unfortunately, as a youth, um, as a young person, as a, a you know a twenty-something idealist, I made a lot of judgments on those particular people. But they had a, a, a culture of worship 
that was something that I didn't understand because I'm a little bit more freely expressive. I, I would be somewhere in between these two guys over here in these two categories, or maybe this one. I don't know what I'm doing, right? Um, but my hands are still up, I guess. I don't really get it. Um, but sometimes we have these, uh, we all come together as a community and we have these really different ideas of what worship is. Some of you have grown up in different places. Some of you mind students, you're here maybe for the first time or you've come back again and you had an experience this week, uh, these last few months, where you've been at your church, your home church, back at home. And then you come here. And sometimes it can be a little jarring because you're like, well, what, what happens? What, how, do, how does this work? Well, worship is a, a very interesting thing. We did a series not that long ago, beginning part of this year, about worship. And today we're actually going to learn about worship from Nehemiah chapter 12. And we're going to get a chance to look into ancient Israelite worship. And, and there's some things I want to pull out from Nehemiah. If we're going to be in the Bible, we're going to read the Bible. That's one of the things we highly value here is reading the Bible. So there is a Bible somewhere um, in your seats or you can pull out a phone or whatever. But you're going to want to be in Nehemiah chapter 12 today. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Um, speaking of things that we, uh, well, I guess I'll just kind of just kind of share this with you. If you haven't been to this church before, maybe you're visiting, or maybe you've been here for a while, it never hurts to know this. Um, just so you know, it is a deeply held belief here that understanding the scriptures is the clearest way to understanding the God of the Bible, which is the clearest way and most sure way of changing our lives. And so one of the reasons why we read the scriptures, why we read this ancient document, is because we want to understand it as God wrote it to his people, so that we can then interpret that through the time, through the years of time, into our lives, right? Like, we need to be able to do that. And so that's my goal, is we read through books of the Bible, we're finishing up Nehemiah, we've got three weeks in Nehemiah, chapter 12, next week is chapter 13, Nick's going to preach that, and then the following week we're going to do a quick Nehemiah wrap-up and say goodbye to Nehemiah. And then we're going to move into the Psalms messages, seven weeks in the Psalms. Of course, we could spend multiple weeks in the Psalms, and we will. Um, But then we're going to move into Thessalonians. We preach through books of the Bible. Why? Well, it's because... If I don't do that, if I bring topics to this thing, if I if I try to take this and make it say what I want it to say, I'm not going to preach on the things that I'm uncomfortable talking about. I'm not going to preach about the things that God's got for us in this that I don't like or that I don't want to talk about. And so we're going to walk through books of the Bible together. It's the job of the missionary, actually, to see the God of the Bible who revealed himself at times through the mediator of our culture and penned his words in here. It's our job as missionaries to learn this and then bring this to other people. So that's one of our highly held beliefs. But one of the things I see in Scripture is that the ultimate end, and this is something that you can you can read about in the Westminster Catechism if you're into reading Catechism, and if you are, you're weird. But um, if you're, no, actually, the Westminster Catechism is fantastic. And the very first line, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to worship God and glorify Him forever. That is our point. That's the chief end. That's why we were created, is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. And until we understand that, until something happens where our heart and our mind are changed from worshiping ourselves or anything else, And change to repent and turn to worship Jesus, nothing feels right in this world. Nothing works right in this world. And what happens is we have this pit in our soul that sucks the life out of us. And so it's my deeply held belief that we come to the scriptures in order to learn how to worship God. 
And there are some times where this is really easy to see. And so we're going to take a look at Nehemiah 12. This may not actually be all that easy to see. We're going to read through some things, and we're going to focus on a few verses. But before we do that, I would like to catch you up to the story of what's happening in Nehemiah. And we've been doing this all summer, so you've missed it, most of you. Um, If you pull out this little handout thingy, on the side there are some icons. Those are icons. These are denoting the very large, uh, the large points of Scripture. And so I'm going to teach you the Old Testament story. And because, you know, it's still summer, uh, Vacation Bible School, you know, is a a big deal. We don't do Vacation Bible School because I still have Vacation Bible School PTSD. But um, in Vacation Bible School, sometimes you use your hands in order to communicate things. And so we've got some hand motions. And so what you're you're seeing here is the plot line of Scripture. And it starts off with creation, which is jazz hands. Everybody's got to do this with me. So creation, okay? So creation. But creation doesn't stay jazzy forever because creation goes into a fall. Right? So there's creation and then there's the fall. And it falls into disrepair. God creates things with shalom, with peace, with order, and then it falls into disrepair as mankind introduces chaos into the issue or into the creation. But then it doesn't stop there because God's still working through the fall. So you got creation and fall, and then he starts calling Abraham to be the father of many nations. And the nations are going to be like the stars in the universe, okay? So there that's many nations, and that's a very big point in the plot line of scripture because you see the nations come back together at the end. But he doesn't stop just, he doesn't start there. He starts by creating his nation, the people of Israel, as a nation in captivity. And he, he creates them in captivity, sends them into captivity as a oh, incubation time in order for them to grow, but also in order for them to teach, in order to teach them that he's the God who redeems them and pulls them from slavery, okay? Which is the next part, because the next part is the Exodus, okay? This is very, if you don't know Jamin, this is, this is a tribute to Jamin. It's his motion, his hand motion, his thing. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Exodus, right? I, I picture, I picture Moses from here on out. That's what I'm like. Pharaoh, let my people go, right? Like, and then Pharaoh's like, no. Okay, sorry. It's another one of Jamin's hand motions, but I interpret all the scripture through Jamin now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, man, where was I? Okay, so you got the exit, and, and God exits the people out. And then as they exit, they wander around. They don't listen to God, and they wander around. You do this with your whole hand, not with your finger, because with your finger it's creepy. But this works really well. Okay, so they wander around, and they eventually wander to the promised land. And they land where God told them to. And in the promised land, things are better than they could have hoped for, except what happens is they end up worshiping and serving other gods. And so what happens is God brings in nations to conquer them, and then raises up saviors we call the judges. Okay, The judges are these little mini saviors that teach Israel that no matter how much you run away, no matter how much sin you fall into, I will raise up a judge to come and save you. But then they say, you know what, we're tired of these judges. We want a king like the other nations. And so it ushers in the season of the kings. Or the Moose King, as Jonas likes to make it. So the Moose King. No, it issues in the kings. And the people listen to the kings and they follow the kings and the kings lead them into... Uh, disobedience. And so God warns them over and over again through the prophets, but eventually he says, you're going to be exiled. And he sends them out through the big bad, uh, big bad nation of Babylon. They come in and they take out the Israelites and they're exiled. But God says, you're not going to be exiled forever because you will return. Okay, And in this return, that is where we find ourselves in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of the people who's bringing the people of Israel, the people of Israel back, the Israelites back. 
Um, he happens to be one of, he's the second person. The first one's Ezra. Ezra comes back and he's a, a great leader, but then Nehemiah, not that Ezra, but a, a better Ezra. Um, and the, uh, it's true. No, I'm sorry. I can't apologize for it. And, uh, but then Nehemiah is the second one that comes up because, and, and Ezra's still here during this whole thing, but if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together, what you're going to find is you're going to find this is the process of God bringing his people back. That's where we find ourselves in Nehemiah. So this passage, what it does is it's going to lay out a rather large, uh, big old worship service, and we're going to look into that. And uh, what you're going to find is some pretty incredible things. Now, I'm going to skip through the first part, okay? I'm going to read this, just so you know. Just grab your Bible, open up to 12, and you'll see why I'm going to skip through it. These were the priests and Levites who returned with Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with Jeshua. And then a list of names. Now, of course, you've been here the last two weeks. I've given you advice. For those of you who are afraid of the names, all you have to do is say them in a very southern accent, and you're fine. Like, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, okay, and you can keep going on like that. It's fine. It's not going to pronounce them correctly anyways. Um, but if you jump all, what it does is it's giving you a list of the Levites and the priests who are there, who returned with Zerubbabel, who returned with Ezra. And if you jump all the way down to verse uh, 22, no, excuse me, 27. We're going to start here at 27 as it finishes up all of the names. And some of these names are fantastic. You should read them. They are wonderful. They do all have their stories. Um, and uh, actually, I'll tell you what, let's start in verse 24. And the leaders of the Levites were Hashabiah, Serbiah, Jeshua, son of Cadmiel, and their associates. Now, this is the part I want you to see. Who stood opposite them to give praise and thanksgiving. Now, what you didn't read, what we skipped over, is that the Levites and the priests are being called together, and they stand in a certain format. They stand in a certain um, in a certain. Um, Oh, what's the word for military guys stand when they stand in a... Yeah, formation, thank you. All right, that's a format. It was close. They stand in a certain formation, right? And their formation is half of them on one side, half of them on the other, and they stand across from each other and they sing praises at each other. Now, that's a little weird, right? Because we've, we actually do this here intentionally at Common Ground. You'll notice, look at the people. There's people there. Hey, guys, did you notice? There's people over here. Did you see these people too? Yeah. We do this intentionally, right? Like we actually built this place in a, in a horseshoe because I want you to realize there are people here. This is part of a, this is part of a cultural divide. The Israelites, the Hebrews, they're used to being very um, aware of the fact that this is a community thing. Okay? Uh, verse 25. Oh, excuse me. I, uh, I, I just skipped over some stuff. One section responding to the other as prescribed by David, the man of God. So not only are they standing across from each other, but they're responding. One sings one thing, the other responds. The other responds and the other responds. And it goes back and forth. Little, little helps. Then, verse 25, Mataniah, Bakabukiah, which is what I wanted to name one of my kids. I'm just kidding. Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmud, and Akub were gatekeepers who guarded the storerooms at the gates. They served all the, in the days of Joachim, son of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe. Right. So we're just getting some of the history. Now, verse 27. This is where I want to. I want you to kind of hunker down with me here. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived, and they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs and thanksgiving, and with the music of cymbals, with harps and with lyres. Harps and lyres, that's like the equivalent of uh, keys and guitar in our day. And there's cymbals. So there's percussion. Okay, Sorry, those of you who maybe grew up where drums were evil, but it's not the way that God feels. 
The singers also were brought together from the regions around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Osmabeth. For the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. Man, that had to be a fun place to live, right? An entire village of singers? You ever wanted to live in a musical? That's probably what's happening here, right? Like, good morning. It's good for you to be in this grocery store. Okay, okay. Uh, anyway, so um, I'm losing my, losing my spot here all the time. Uh, for the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. This seems like a lot of work right now, okay? So if you're not catching this, what happens is they're calling the priests and the Levites from all of their different cities. And some of them are villages that they built, and they're coming in, and then they're purifying themselves ceremonially, ceremonially and purifying the people and the gates and the walls. Okay, so what they're doing is they are literally ceremonially washing gates, walls, sometimes sprinkling blood on them, sometimes washing them with water. It's all prescribed, and it's all a big, huge deal. Now, verse 31, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Nice neighborhood, I heard. Uh, Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some priests with trumpets, and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mattaniah, the son of Micaiah. And there's a whole list of names, right? And if you jump down just a little bit to verse 37, at the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and passed above the wall to David and the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall, together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens of the broad wall. Warm. Over the gate of Ephraim, the Jeshana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred, and as far as the sheep gate at the gate of the guard, they stopped. Verse 40, the two choirs that gave thanks then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests. And then a whole other list of names. Verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms and of the contributions of first fruits and tithes. And the rest of the passage finishes up, and you can read that on your own. But here's what I want to focus on. Are you getting the sense that this is a pretty big deal? Worship is a pretty big deal to these guys. They've called in professional worship leaders and singers and all that stuff from far and wide. People who are born of certain certain lineages. They, they call them in. They bring them in. They travel together. They get together. And then they wash all the walls and they wash the gates and they, 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 they cleanse the people and they cleanse themselves. And then they march up on top of the walls and they march around and then they take their place in the house of God. And then they sing back and forth to each other. And then they rejoice with great joy so that it's heard far and wide. This is a big deal. Now one of the things that I can't help but notice is, is worship that big of a deal to us? You know, if you look at some of these places uh, that we just showed earlier in the screen, what did you notice about the one in China? First thing I noticed is there's about, I don't know, a dozen people in there. And they're singing quiet. Do you know why that is? Because they can't worship there without government approval. Because they have to 
sometimes meet in homes because of villages that are really, really small, but oftentimes they're, they're forced to go to gigantic churches that can only preach certain messages that are approved by the three-self church of China. There are places in Cambodia, right? You saw the one in Cambodia, and they were, they were louder and they were bigger. Cambodia is huge, 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 huge. And right now, there are churches popping up all over Cambodia, especially in the, like, uh, the former demilitarized zone, the no man's land, where there's still mines and all that stuff. And people will walk to church amongst minefields. If I put a minefield in front of this place, would you come? <laughs> Charlie, you already stepped on one. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, I come to late service, like after I can see where everything's. Yeah, good job. Uh-huh. <laughs> For us, this is just an interesting thing. I think it's because we have so many choices. We have the Baptists, and we have the Charismatics, and we have the. Nobody's talking, and we have the I don't knows, and we have the formals, and we have these things where we can go, you know what? That church is really hard to worship at for me. I'm going to go where it's easier. And this leaks into us. This even leaks down into like this text. Is it easy to, is it easy to understand the Bible? Actually, no. It's a really hard book to understand. It's a difficult book to understand. And it's a difficult book to understand, especially correctly. And we look at it and we go, you know what, that's too hard. I'm going to go somewhere where they're going to make it really simple for me to understand. That's not necessarily the best idea. Some of the things I want to point out in this is worship done correctly has a few things to it. And and these are really big. First, worship by definition is something that is extravagant. It's something that's extravagant. See, like worship, biblically, biblically defined, worship is a sacrifice. And a sacrifice is only a sacrifice if it is over the top of what would be safe. Because safe isn't a sacrifice. A sacrifice is something you give away that you are actually uncomfortable giving away. So worship by its definition is extravagant. It's extravagant. If you see in this text, this worship is a lot of work. People are having to leave their homes and travel on roads that they have to walk on. The Levites and the priests who are the quote-unquote professional worshipers are summoned. And as they gather for this worship event, they have to dress up, they have to clean up, they have to change everything, they have to go through all of this stuff, they have to get it down to a T. There's a lot that's going on. Why? Because worship, in its definition, is extravagant. But it's not just that, because it continues, in particularly in verse 43, and this is one of my favorite verses in all this passage, and it's why I stopped where I did. And on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Because worship, as its, as its core definition, is joy. It's joyful. It's joyful. It's a joy cycle. I made a mistype in there, and it said joycycle, which could be awesome too, but this is a joy cycle. It is God who has given us great joy. And then we respond with the joy that He's given us to give it back to Him. And here's how this happens. This happens when our soul comes alive. Do you remember the day? I don't know if you remember the day. I know I remember the day. And it actually was multiplicities of days. But there was a day in my thinking and in my mind where my soul was dead. I was not... My my mind could not comprehend the things of God. My heart did not want the things of God. Something was 
broken inside of me. And then all of a sudden, like a clap of lightning, like a, like a clap of thunder, something changed. And God made my soul come alive. And all of a sudden I could read this and I could talk about this and I could understand who God... And it was like a flood because when God awakens your soul and then He dumps His infinite nature into you, it is a flood and it is something that is almost an unquenchable thirst inside of you, yet it's so much that it keeps coming on you again and again and again and again and again. Do you remember that moment? Do you know that moment? Have you had those moments? If you have not, you may have never actually worshipped. And I think one of the reasons why is because if we walk this back, we don't have to be extravagant about our worship. We don't have to sacrifice a thing. It's served up to us on a silver platter. And therefore, because we don't sacrifice anything, God does not open up our hearts and our minds and, and there's no joy that's dumped in. But for some of you, I know you have... Because we talk about this. Your soul has come alive and the result of it is joy. And C.S. Lewis, I just read a book by C.S. Lewis called Surprised by Joy. It was actually his autobiography. It was really dry at first and then stayed dry. But it was really, it was really good quotes. Um, and uh, and you get to, get to meet some cool things. But what he defines joy as is joy is an unquenchable and unyielding thirst for that which cannot be satisfied. An unyielding and unquenchable thirst for that which cannot be satisfied. It's something where God awakens a desire inside of you for eternal, for eternity. But you're trapped in here. And you can't have that. You can't, not only can you not get enough of it, not only do you want it all the time, but you also can't get the fullness of it because we're trapped right here. That is the Christian experience. That's what the worship, that's what worship is all about. That is what happens when Jesus changes our soul, is he turns us into people of joy. And joy is not happiness. Joy is an unquenchable, unsatisfied, yet uncom, like completely, uh, excuse me, unsatisfied, unquenchable, yet completely like desiring joy. It doesn't stop there, okay? So we have this joy, but also you noticed that God, by His definition, is worthy of our loud and extravagant worship. God, by His definition, is worthy of our worship. God being who He is and we being who we are, that alone should bring us into a place where we cannot help but worship Him. But God being who He is, we being who we are, and Jesus doing what He has done should cause us to worship with everything that we have got. No matter if there's a minefield outside or not. This all happens because, and then there's this huge principle I want to teach you about. Psalm 16 in the Gospel. This all happens because of Psalm 16 in the Gospel. And Psalm 16 says this. I will turn to it and read. You can turn if you want to or scroll in your device. You'll probably get there faster than I will. I don't know. Paper's pretty quick. But Psalm 16 says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. Oh, that's a weird word. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are my glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delighted inheritance. 
I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This concept is a big one. And what it says is, in God's presence is joy everlasting and pleasures forevermore at His right hand, willing to dish them out and willing to give them to anyone who comes to Him. And this, this psalmist even says, like the sorrows of those who run after other gods are going to continue getting bigger and deeper and deeper, and there's going to be this life-sucking sound in their soul. But God's here to say, come to me and I will give you joy forevermore, and I will lay out everything that will please you eternally and infinitely. This is what the gospel does. Because here's the deal, and if you've ever seen anybody hand out one of those uh, track thingies, um, you know, the, you know the, the visual of like, hey, here's one cliff, and you're on this side. And here's another cliff, and God's on this side, and you can't get to each other, right? Like, that's, that's a real deal. We are separated by God, we are separated by sin from God. We cannot be with Him. But then Jesus comes and He heals Our sin, He takes the full weight of the wrath of God. He burns God's wrath completely. And He says, I now own everything. I own your sin. I own your life. I own eternal life. And then He dies and pays the penalty for that. And then raises forevermore and says, Now, all who come to Me, I will give you the right to be children of God. And you will be with God again. That is what happens in the Gospel. And we have joy. We have joy because our soul is made alive because we can be back with God and we can worship Him forever. That is what the gospel does is it gives us joy. So my question only to you is this. Are you joyful? And do you have a joy, as this passage said, that can be heard far and wide? I don't know if you noticed that, but that passage said, and the joy of the people was heard far and wide. It was heard outside of the city, the loudness of their worship. Do you have that kind of joy? If you are like me, I do not have that kind of joy on Monday. And most Sundays. I don't know if I have this kind of joy. I know there are times in my life where I have had this kind of joy. But there are days where I am struggling for joy. And the the right answer is not, go find something that's going to make me joyful. The right answer is, come to Jesus and ask for joy. And so today, as a means of practical application, here's what we're going to do. We're going to worship. Matt's going to come up. He's going to play a couple of songs. And I'm going to challenge you this way. As we're singing these songs, I want you to think about who God is. I want you to think about your joy in Jesus Christ. I want you to think about where that's at. And whatever you need to do, I don't know what the word of the Lord is saying to you today, but however you need to get joy, however you need to come to the Father in order to have joy, that is what I want you to do. If it means coming down here to pray in front, that's great. I used to be a Baptist. That's what we did in the Baptist church. You come down front of the altar and you just come pray. Right? Sisters. But if you need to come down here to pray, that's great. If you feel like God just wants you to humble yourself and to sit in your chair and not sing, that's fine too. Maybe... 
God's telling you, I need to make some sort of commitment to my to my Jesus that I have been far from. You can do that too. Maybe God's telling you, you know what? I've been sitting in a church for long enough. And I need to go out and I need to go serve somebody and help somebody and do something. Go. Get out of here. Seriously. Like, if that's what God's telling you, do not disobey. Go. Because time is of the essence. If God's telling you it's time to give your life to Him and be baptized, Nick Nick brought up we're having a baptism service in just a little while. Come talk to me about that. If God's moving you to a place where you need to commit your year to Him, mine students, you're here, you need to commit your year to Him, saying, I will obey you and I will obey you only, you need to figure out how to make a covenant with God. I can help you with that. Or Nick can. Or uh, James can. He's one of the elders. Jake's not here. Lazy. <laughs> no, it's working. But we can help you walk through this thing. This is the moment to do business with Jesus. Is Matt singing? And I know, um, well, we haven't quite run out of time yet, but Matt's going to come up here and sing after I pray. And you just do business with Jesus. However, you, however God leads you to do that. But know that there is nothing, there's no cost too high. If God's calling you to do something extravagant, do not be afraid of that. Do not be afraid of that. Because worship by its very nature is loud and extravagant. Are you joyful? Jesus, I pray that you would give us joy. An unquenchable, yearning desire for you. For more and more and more of you. That our lives would reflect a life of joy. And depth. And a loud extravagance in our worship. And Lord, I don't know where people are at today. I don't know what they've, what, what they're carrying around or what, what baggage they've, they've brought in here. You do. And so I know that you're working with people. And maybe there's a moment here where somebody needs to come and do something and come and commit something and come and, and give you their lives. Lord, just move. I give you freedom to do that. You do that way better than I do. I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. Just ask that you would and that you would move people in their hearts and in their souls. To worship you. Lord, I pray that we would live lives of extravagant worship. Loud and clearly before you. Laying ourselves down at your feet. Laying our things down at your feet. Offering ourselves to one another. And serving one another as the body of Jesus Christ. Lord, there is nothing more beautiful than that. We give you glory and honor as we come into worship. As we come into your presence now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.